Nelson with the Texas Academy of Family Physicians coming to you from TAFP headquarters in Austin, Texas, where I think we must be on about day 72 of social distancing. Seriously, uh, we are uh, recording this on Monday, March 23rd, and I would like to report that I survived the weekend without leaving the house or strangling anyone or without being strangled myself, which is uh, perhaps uh, that was perhaps the more likely outcome. Uh, My daughter is home from college on an extended spring break, so she and my son, who's 17, and my wife, we played every board game we had in the house, and I'm pretty sure we found the end of Netflix, so... uh, we're going we're gonna to survive, though, I think. Uh, here at the office, everyone is pretty much working from home, but I, uh, I needed to come in to do this recording, so it's an empty building here. I'm joined today by Tom Banning, TAFP's CEO and Executive Vice President. Hey, Tom. Hey, Jonathan. How are you doing? I'm great. How'd you guys make it through the weekend? Uh, we're surviving. Uh, you know, two young kids that have been cooped up with bad weather. Um, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're making it um, and, uh, and obsessively washing our hands. Well done. Well done. Well, this is uh, our second attempt at podcasting, and we're working to uh, to use this platform to bring you a series of interviews designed to help family docs keep providing high-quality, comprehensive care to their patients during the COVID-19 pandemic. Tom, we're going to be talking with three experts today from Stratify Health and Catalyst Health Network, uh, and we're really hoping to get into some of the nuts and bolts in how docs could uh, could implement and and uh, and maximize their use of uh, telehealth services uh, during this time uh, to help them provide you know great care for their patients and also to uh, to help their cash flow, frankly. Um, would you talk a little bit about why, how you were able to hook us up with these uh, with these experts, and why you think it's important that we're talking to them? Sure. Thank you, Jonathan. That's a great question. Um, you know, Catalyst Health Network is kind of like a unicorn uh, in terms of medical practice. Um, they have uh, an incredible amount of expertise and experience uh, because of their size um, and the ability to uh, leverage capital and um, uh, bring in some some incredibly forward-thinking individuals. Um, and Christopher Crow, their uh, uh, chief executive officer, reached out to me and and um, you know offered these resources to all of our members uh, statewide. So you know in a a time like this, um, you know, all members, uh, all of our members uh, could use and need the expertise that um, Catalyst is, is uh, graciously offered to, to the Academy. Well, that sounds great. Let's kick it off with our first guest. Joining us now is Dr. Jeff Bullard. He's the Chief Medical Officer for Catalyst Health Network. Hi, Dr. Bullard. Hey, Jonathan. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. Thanks. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, why don't you give us a basic understanding of of what Catalyst Health Network is? Sure, absolutely. So Catalyst Health Network is an organization of uh, 800 docs 
uh, and independent practices across a big swath of Texas, including North Texas, East Texas, and um, some in Central Texas as well. Uh, Catalyst is an organization that's a clinically integrated network that's here to support those docs, uh, help uh, help them remain independent, uh, help their practices in any way we can from a support standpoint. Uh, we're just really trying to help empower those docs to, to be able to have healthier practices uh, and in turn, healthier communities. What are you hearing from uh, from docs in the network? Uh, you know now about uh, about practicing in the midst of COVID nineteen. Oh man, lots. We're hearing a lot. It, you know, it's it's a, a bit of a chaotic time. Uh, you know, we've got such. Uh, great folks out there trying to do great work, but they're really at this point, I think, looking for some direction. I think so many of them are being just bombarded with information. You can't open your uh, your inbox right now without seeing uh, 15, seems like, uh, emails every hour from some source about some update. So they're, for what we find is that they're just really looking for a way to sort through all that information, um, use the best information available, and um, strike out a path to make sure that they're taking care of folks at a time where you know, we just haven't seen anything like this before. So uh, it's a, a little bit of a, a crazy time for everybody. Yeah, that's pretty much what we're hearing as well. One of the things physicians are turning to, of course, is increased use of telemedicine. And I know you're doing a lot of that. Um, but I understand that uh, just a couple of months ago in your network, only about 2% of your physicians uh, were using telemedicine. Is that correct? Yeah. So the, the number of visits that were actually being done before just a few weeks ago, even so beginning of this year, uh, for, for the network, for our network was about 2% of all visits being done virtually. And now what's the, what's, what's happened to that number now? Um, now about 80% uh, across the network are being done virtually. So you can imagine that's a, an alarming, um, number when you think about the amount of effort that goes into, to pivoting that quickly, and changing the way you practice. Uh, it's just, it's staggering to me the amount of work people have put in to, to turn this thing on a dime and get to a place where they can continue to private ac- provide access to their patients. It's, it's, it's incredible. Wow. Yeah, that's staggering. It sounds like you've been able to do in five days what uh, would take mo- most organizations five years to implement. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if you look at Tom, um, if we look at 2019, so practices in our network who actually had some capacity to do uh, telehealth visits or virtual visits at the beginning of uh, 2019, so January 2019 was about 5%. Um, we had moved to closer to 10% of those practices being able to have some capacity to do telehealth visits, but again, only 2% of those visits were actually taking place. So it's a pretty slow change. Um, and when you consider the move, I think last year to telehealth was we really need to figure out how to provide convenience and access for patients in a world that, that is changing and evolving. So, you know, there's, there's some pressure, there's competition out there um, for uh, uh, PCPs in this space. Um, from the retail space uh, to move to convenience and access to telehealth. Even with that pressure, it was you know a, a pretty slow change uh, over the 2019 year period to see that happen, to go from 
2% of visits to 80% of visits. And in some practices right now, 100% of their visits are virtual. Um, you know, 90 to 100 is, is a pretty common number uh, across the network. It's, it's, it's alarming. It's staggering. It just... So, so outside of access and convenience and, and, you know, simply being forced into this situation, I would imagine there's also a, a safety component of keeping at-risk patients physically out of the office and, and at home, uh, as well as for the doctors as well. Yeah, there, no question. Um, and in fact, you know, when we looked at this from a network standpoint, we knew access was was going to be something that's extremely important. But the immediate issue was how do we keep our healthcare workers safe? Um, how do we keep uh, you know the the patients um, from a cross contamination standpoint safe? And uh, virtual visits were really the only way to, for us to be able to accomplish accomplish that and also maintain a level of access. So when we're pushing this, we're really trying to push this for our practices so that they understand. Hey, I still have a way to operate. And I can operate in a way that's safe. I can continue to work and be uh, be there for my patients in a state where, um, you know, otherwise I'd have to close my doors or uh, really limit access to those patients who I think are, are um, in a, a position where they could come into the office and do, do so safely. If we had all the PPE in the world uh, and the ability to uh, isolate folks and utilize PPE within a, a outpatient setting, then docs will be doing it, but we just don't have that. And so we have to move and pivot uh, to a, a solution. And, and this is one that just, you know, it, it, it just has to happen. It's not a question of should I, it's a question of how quickly can I, and, and what in what way? And I imagine that um, some of the federal and state um, uh, governments that have, have relaxed uh, certain regulations uh, and have required payment parity for telemedicine or virtual services has certainly helped. Um, uh, is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's a, a, a good summary because I think, you know, we're fortunate in that many people acted quickly. So we, as you mentioned, we've had a, a big announcement back on the 17th um, from the Office of Civil Rights where they loosen those HIPAA enforcement uh, restrictions that would make this just not doable, I think. Um, we've had to move so quickly. Again, that that's one of those one of those things, and it gets back to your question you asked earlier about how do you do this in five days? It takes things like this. It takes being able to to move those waivers into place um, for a period of time, and 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 they make sense. You know, it's not that we're um, given now this sort of license to just do whatever we want. We're still, from a healthcare standpoint, practicing um, to the best standard we can. Um, if you have a HIPAA compliant product, you should be using your HIPAA compliant product. If for some reason bandwidth is an issue or connectivity is an issue, then you can step down to something that's not HIPAA compliant, but it's still a private um, it's still recommended that you're using a private interface. So it should be a, 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 a FaceTime or um, a Facebook Messenger, but not something like Facebook Live or Twitch. You know, some of the, some things that would be more public facing. So so there's there's some reason within these changes and restrictions um, and the loosening of those restrictions. I think docs can feel extremely comfortable that they can step into um, providing these virtual visits and, um, and, and not be putting themselves uh, in jeopardy from, a, you know, what typically is a pretty restrictive uh, type of space, um, thanks to these waivers. And then on the payment side, you know, it's, it's, uh, 
it's kind of a scary time. Uh, it's it's exciting that we're seeing a lot of folks be able to uh, to learn some skills and capacities in ways that they've never been able to practice before and, and in a rapid pace and continue to be there and provide access for those patients who um, are at a high stress level and really need that access at this point. Um, but uh, we're doing a lot of that on sort of a hope and a prayer that we're going to get reimbursed um, across all payers. Fortunately, you've got um, sweeping um, uh, changes or mandates uh, even from the federal and state level, um, uh, mandating some parity across most of the payers. Uh, you know, we still have the the wild card of the self-funded payers, but for the most part, um, if it's a uh, government payer uh, or some of those fully funded plans, then we should expect to see parity. What's going to be a real challenge, I think, for a lot of practices right now is they're going to have to follow that and monitor closely on the billing uh, and, and reimbursement side uh, and, and probably do a little bit of work uh, to, to capture those dollars and make sure that they're really getting paid for the work that they're doing. Uh, and, and let's sure hope that that's, that's going to be uh, the case because without it, um, you're going to see a lot of practices struggling to just stay open uh, and keep keep that workforce out and, and, and available for access. Uh, Dr. Bullard, can you share any uh, insights um, with your colleagues across the state that have not yet integrated telemedicine into their workflow about uh, how to do it or things that sure. they need to be thinking about as they do this? Absolutely. Um, I'm glad you asked that question because I think the, the big thing right now is that if you've not done it, uh, I don't know what the reason is. Um, uh, and I'm sure there are a number of reasons uh, that, that you're sort of holding off. Um, I would strongly encourage you do it. Um, it is going to be um, something that is going to be required as this pandemic continues in order for you to be uh, in a place where you can provide access to your patients and we're going to need every one of you available um, if predictions are correct to be able to provide that access. Um, I think um, one of the biggest things I would recommend is to, to think about it from a um, from a business model standpoint is there are two business models that exist here as you transition to this type of telehealth uh, operation. Um, you're going to have a facility-based model, which is um, not going to be like the facility-based model you currently have. Um, the number of patients who actually present in office for face-to-face -face visits has, has decreased significantly. Uh, we've seen that across our entire network. Um, and so the amount of uh, staff that you need to actually man the operations is going to change. Uh, on the other side, you've got an, a completely separate model that looks completely different on the virtual visit side. And you can reallocate a lot of those uh, typical facility-based resources to those virtual-based um, uh, care model uh, resources and help them spin up appointments for you and uh, you know, look at scheduling differently and look at uh, um, uh, you know, how you connect to your patients differently. A lot of that can be done uh, even with your staff being remote. I think some of the other things to really consider are the types of patients that you see. We've seen um, some statistics of 40 or 50 percent of patients and those harder hit areas are all new patients on the telehealth front. Um, so you have to be prepared and understand that you're going to be establishing relationships with new patients, something that the state of Texas now allows um, virtually uh, in order to really be able to serve the population that needs care. Um, and then at the same time, you have to figure out how you're going to continue to manage those chronic disease patients that you take care of on a day-to-day -day basis. So there are ways to do it. You just have to, um, you know, suspend, uh, I think, 
your traditional practice styles and, and be open to um, being creative about the way you're delivering care through just through a different medium, which will feel, I think for a lot of you, like a face-to-face visit once you, you kind of get past the technology piece uh, and, and just make it work. I think that's what it's going to take. For family physicians who aren't doing any telemedicine, uh, what sort of communications platforms would you recommend they start investigating? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. There's a lot of um, different options that are available out there. Some EMRs, a good number of them will actually have some embedded um, uh, platforms for telehealth that you can launch straight from your EMR, which is uh, a win from an E standpoint. Um, but but you certainly do not have to go that direction. There are a, a number of platforms out there that have um, some, some pretty basic uh, function, which is really what you need right now. You just need a way to connect with your patients. Um, so there's some uh, very low cost options out there um, that are available. Um, uh, there's some... Um, Opportunity, I think, too, to use a couple of free different applications that are out there um, that, that also have some limited capacity. And then I think the other thing to think about from a, a platform standpoint is you may have a platform in place. And we're hearing issues right now from a, a bandwidth standpoint for networks uh, where connectivity can can be a problem regardless of uh, whether you're utilizing a particular platform or not. Um, because of changes in regulations, you do have the ability to, if you need to, move from something that includes video interface to just audio, um, or you can move to something that is a little less platform-centric and, and move to something like FaceTime or Skype um, as a step down. And then if you need to, you can actually step all the way down to a phone call. We just recommend that you make sure you document which which vehicle you use in terms of connecting with your patient uh, in your documentation. But um, th- there's just a ton of options available. Um, using or having a platform available should not be your reason uh, to, to hold back. There's, there's plenty of, of stuff out there for you. Dr. Bullard, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today and talking about uh, this you know, really important stuff for our members to be hearing. Thank you. Absolutely. And thank you both, uh, Jonathan and Tom, for, for doing this and all the work that you're doing here. I applaud your efforts. Thanks. Thank you. Okay. Our next guest is Trevor Clifton, Senior Financial Analyst at Stratify Health. Hey, Trevor. Hey, guys. How you doing? <laughs> We're hanging in there. <laughs> yeah, glad to be here. Well, we're thrilled to have you. We're thrilled you're here with us and appreciate you're doing this. Um, Trevor, senior financial analyst. So uh, so tell us a bit about, well, about what Stratify does and about what you do for Stratify. Sure. Yeah. Um, so Stratify Health is kind of the parent company of Catalyst Health Network. Catalyst is the actual network of physicians and Stratify um, empowers the network um, from a uh, from a clinical perspective and an administrative perspective, right? So on the clinical side, um, Stratify uh, employs all of the the extended care team that is like the extension of the physician's office, right? So they're helping um, uh, close the gaps in care uh, for all the the patients inside the network. And then on the administrative side, we're supporting those individual um, independent practices using. Um, data analytics. We're helping them on the finance and accounting side. Uh, we help them on the uh, the IT side and revenue cycle management, as well as like application support for um, uh, the uh, electronic medical record system. So we think of ourselves as kind of a full a full um, 
suite of services to help independent physicians thrive um, in a time where there's a lot of practices that are uh, that are starting to become employed by hospitals. And we we really think that the the patients are better off having an option for um, independent family practices. Hey, Trevor, um, when so about tell me a little bit about the uh, the practices that you guys support, these independent practices you're talking about, like what size are we talking about? How big are the practices? Yeah, great question. So um, we support practices all the way down to the one to two doctor practice up until we've got some that are, you know, 50, 60, 70 um, uh, total providers. So we're really across the board. Um, at the end of the day, uh, we're, we're looking to help independent physicians thrive outside of, outside of even just the family practices. Actually, we're working with specialists as well. Um, but we, we hope that, uh, we hope that we provide a lot of value to those independent practices. So Trevor, you brought up, uh, financial, uh, management a few times, uh, obviously cash flow and practice viabilities is at the top of mind of, uh, family physicians these days, now more than ever. Um, you know, one strategy practices are, are utilizing is moving to telemedicine or a virtual platform to care for patients and generate needed revenue for for practice operations. And, you know, as you know, that's a pretty big change in how physicians deliver care. And many physicians are understandably concerned about whether or not the finances for, for this type of shift in work um, can, can make. Um, and I know you've done some financial modeling on on this, can you uh, can you share with us what you've what you found? Yeah, I think you you nailed it on the head in the beginning of this. It says, you know, it's uh, you know, telemedicine is not it's not a new thing. It's been around for a little while, but the widespread adoption and utilization of it by practices um, has been slow and very gradual. Um, unfortunately, sometimes it takes a, a a national crisis for things to really um, make a significant movement. Um, but yeah, absolutely. We're seeing a, a huge fundamental shift in how providers are caring for and, and meeting with their patients. Um, we think now more than ever, right, um, that, that telemedicine is going to be uh, beneficial for, for providers to, to take care of their patients in a, in a meaningful way still. Um, so from the financial perspective, um, what we've done is we've looked at several of the practices with inside uh, Catalyst Health Network, right? Because those are the ones that we're most um, uh, uh, tuned to. Um, there has been a gradual increase in telehealth visits uh, over time from a volume perspective. You know, if we look over the last 18 months or so, right? Um, what practices mostly worry about is, hey, are we going to get paid for those visits in the same way that we get paid for uh, our in-office visits. It's scary. It's absolutely scary because they got to keep the lights on. They got to make sure that they can pay their staff and things like that. Um, so there is some nuance to uh, the parity laws inside Texas um, around the self-funded plans and their benefit design. Once all that gets kind of sorted out, um, I think that what we're going to see is a, is a real really close, hopefully from a very high level perspective, uh, a, a close um, reimbursement, reimbursement, uh, between the two. Um, and that's actually historically what we've seen for our practices that utilize telemedicine a little bit more where we've actually got good data is that the reimbursement for an office visit, let's just say your, your normal nine, nine, two, one, three, um, is going to be, 
very much so similar to what it is in office, right? You won't have a lot of the times you may not have those ancillary things that you that that uh, the practices are able to stack on when the patient's in the practice, but, but just strictly on the office visit, the uh, the reimbursement for those is similar, right? It's a little bit low. It's a little bit lower, but once we get through again some of these legislative changes and things like that, I do believe that we're going to be close um, to what it was. And the good news there is that. Um, you'll be able to, with a, with a similar rate, obviously, um, you'll be able to kind of keep practice in the same way. Um, but on the operations side, um, what we've also seen is that it's taken a lot of our providers less time to do those office visits rel- or the, the televisits relative to the office visits. So if you think about it, let's say on average you're in office visits, you're, you've got 20 minute slots. Right. We've seen a lot of our providers who are now shifting because of COVID-19 uh, um, till 95 percent televisits because they have to. Right. They've been able to shift those slots down to 10, 15 minutes. Right. Physicals obviously take a little bit longer. But for those normal office visits, they're able to fit more of them into the day. Right. So even with a little bit of a shift in reimbursement, even if it does go a little bit down, you'll be able to stack more of those visits in, in the same day. Um, and the other thing too, is as we leverage technology more, um, I think you're going to see, you know, different generations of patients that want to be met by their provider where they are. Right. So, um, providers being able like, we think about it as doctor on demand as much as they want to be there, right. As much as the physicians are, um, not being burnt out for it. Um, so all that being said, um, we think, we believe based on the data that we've seen that there's going to be a very similar reimbursement rate may go down a little bit, but on the operation side, um, you'll be able to fit more of them in uh, to your schedule, which will help you one, take care of more patients, right. And also keep the lights on, keep your staff paid and happy uh, in the same way that you have before. Well, that's, that is fantastic information. And thank you for talking about the efficiency that some practices might see and, you know, potentially lower fixed cost in a, in a environment, a physician environment that is uh, a very high fixed cost to, to run a practice with salary and rent and uh, everything else that, that, that comes with that. Uh, you know, what I'm excited about uh, as well as as we move into more uh, value-based uh, contracts um, that that we're really building um, the infrastructure that's going to be needed uh, to provide uh, more comprehensive uh, services in a value based environment. So let me let me um, let me say one last thing, and 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 that is, uh, you guys have actually designed um, a, a graph that visualizes uh, the financial model that you just described based on real world experience of, of one of your practices. Um, and Catalyst Health Network has graciously offered to share that um, uh, that visualization uh, with all of our members. And I just want to uh, let the listeners know uh, that and and uh, and and thank you and, and Catalyst and Stratify for for giving our members um, uh, that uh, that access. And Jonathan, can you tell us um, where our members might be able to find that? Yeah, we'll put that up in the show notes uh, for the podcast. And so, in fact, we'll do that with any documentation like that that we're able to uh, to get uh, pertaining to an interview. This one, uh, for certain, we'll put it up in the show notes. 
Hey, Trevor, thank you so much for joining us today. It was, uh, it was a real pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Our final guest today is Stephanie Tallette. She's also with Stratify Health. She is the Director of Revenue Cycle. Hi, Stephanie. Hello. Thank you so much for, for letting me join you today. So, Stephanie, what is a Director of Revenue Cycle? What, what do you do? Basically, I am I'm in charge of helping our physicians make sure that they are maximizing the, the revenue for the, the services that they provide for our, our patients and helping them guide through all of the, the myriad of payer policies that come out on a day-to-day basis and making sure that they are working through all of the, the legislative guidelines, the payer guidelines, the state, local, all of those um, myriad of hoops um, that we may have to jump through on a day-to-day basis. So I imagine you have eyes on all the third-party contracts, the third-party payer contracts, right? Yes. So how are the payers behaving in this current situation, um, specifically regarding payment for telemedicine services? So payers are, are being very upfront in their in their payer policies and, and policies are changing, right? As we are all aware, and this this health crisis, if you will, is, is hitting us all and we're all having to adapt to a new reality. So as the, the policies are changing and we're having to all adapt to maybe now work from home, um, we're now having to change our, our normal policy. Telehealth is not a new, um, new to our industry. Um, we're actually have been doing telehealth in our industry for, for years. But now we're having um, new regulations that have been modified. And so payers are adapting to that. So where we have guidelines in our contracts currently for telehealth, um, we're having to now modify those to allow more patients access to care. So we're having to adapt those rules that maybe we had in place prior and now put those rules in place to adapt those maybe preventative services or additional expand those patients that now we can actually cross state lines. Um, They've relaxed the border rules. So physicians can now see patients in Oklahoma, for instance, to make sure that they're getting care that they need. Um, We're allowing more services where patients couldn't have services previously at home for Medicare. They're now allowed to do that. So we're adapting to those new guidelines that that either um, the governor or um, President Trump has now allowed us to do. Stephanie, when you look at a a family physician's practice, um, you can really break it into uh, three, possibly four payer streams. You've got Medicare, you've got Medicaid, you've got the state-regulated, fully insured, uh, covered lives, and then you have the self-insured lives that uh, don't really have any state regulation or oversight. Um, My understanding is that historically, all four of those silos would have um, different payment requirements or restrictions on uh, who could be offered telemedicine services. Have we seen an alignment between those four entities or is it still kind of all over the map? We've seen alignment in the Medicare, Medicaid, commercial payers. 
where it is still somewhat of an unknown is in our self-funded world. And, um, and what percentage of the what percentage of the market in uh, the Dallas Fort Worth area, as an example, would you say fall into that uh, self-insured market? About an estimate is about two thirds of our market in in Dallas is is self-funded, and that's that's the biggest um, question right now is how will our self-funded payers um, and those managed plans adapt to this telehealth market? And that's our, our biggest concern right now. Yeah, we um, uh, at a national level, the AAFP, the AMA and others are trying to pursue legislation um, to require payment parity for those ERISA plans um, to bring them in line with Medicare, Medicaid and and the fully insured market. So when you look at um, the 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 three buckets or three payers: Medicare, Medicaid, and fully insured. It's my understanding that um, all three will now pay for telemedicine services at the same rate that they would pay for an in-office visit. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, that there is no um, requirement for the type of platform that a physician has to use. In other words, uh, they've waived HIPAA regulation, so you could use FaceTime or you could use an embedded uh, telemedicine platform in your EMR or uh, something else that uh, that that. Uh, helps facilitate that communication. That is correct. You want to make sure that you are um, getting that consent from that patient and, and walking through with that patient. The the guidelines of that um, is your first thing. But yes, you are correct. Um, they have waived the audio um, restriction for that. Um, previously, it had to be that, that video um, synchronous rule. They have waived that, that component of that. Um, from a so what you're saying? Basis. Yeah. So what you're saying is, I could use my smartphone to right. either telephonically call them or text with the patients, and that would be a reimbursable event. That is correct. From a documentation standpoint, what do the physicians need to think about? So, from a documentation, it's the same as if that patient is is face to face with you. It's the same in that in that situation. So, if you have a situation where you are um, documenting an in-person visit. Um, you want to make sure that if you're documenting vitals, that you're getting that information from that patient. So if, if you're documenting the, um, the chart, you're documenting the, the type of, of visit. So audio um, video is, is still important within that chart. You're, you're documenting that you provided that consent for that telemedicine visit. You're documenting the overall um, same indicators that you would for your your template. And we're actually working on that template currently to, to help physicians ensure that they're getting all of those um, key elements. Fantastic. And, um, you know, from a, uh, setting aside the ERISA preempted um, plans or covered lives, uh, are there other payment challenges that our physicians need to keep front of mind as they're beginning to transition to a more virtual platform for providing care? It's always important to, to look at your, your visits. Um, and when you're looking at that reimbursement, um, you want to look at your visit, your E&M level threes, um, your E&M level fours. If you have the documentation to support those services, 
how is that coming back from your, your payers? So looking at the diagnosis that's associated with those visits, how are those payers providing that? So are you seeing denials associated with that? So as you look back through your, your common trends, um, United Healthcare, Cigna, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Aetna, are you seeing an increase in your denials associated to a non-covered service for a cough? Um, are you seeing uptick? So when you look at COVID-related diagnoses, um, our hope is that those are going through and being paid um, very quickly. Um, we're seeing some payer guidelines coming out. Cigna published a, a guideline last week that said, please don't submit COVID claims until April 6th. Well, that would be a devastating cash flow issue for our practices. We can't wait um, to gain those revenues for six weeks. That would be a delay for all of our practices. Um, none of our practices, nor would I ever recommend that our practices hold on to claims um, for that process. So as you're seeing those policies come out, make sure that we are sharing that at the, the industry level through your industry leaders, through MGMA, through TF, TAFP, all of those processes. But bottom line is we're going to have to track all of these claims from a diagnosis level, both COVID and non-COVID related. How are the payers responding from a self-funded? How are they responding from a commercial, Medicare, Medicaid, commercial payer level? That's gonna be the bottom line to evaluate how quickly the payer response is to this issue. Yeah, and, and to that end, uh, uh, Stephanie, you've actually created a payer chart uh, with specific coding and billing requirements for providing telemedicine and, and Catalyst Health Network and Stratify Health have graciously offered to share that with all TAFP members. I just want to uh, thank you for that um, uh, and let our listeners know that uh, that will be available uh, on our website. Yes, we'll put that up in the show notes. Stephanie, thank you so much for being with us on the show today. This has been tremendously helpful. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I appreciate your time. Well, folks, that's it for the Big Telemedicine Show. I'd like to thank Dr. Jeff Bullard of Catalyst Health Network and Trevor Clifton and Stephanie Tollette of Stratify Health. And as always, Tom Banning, thank you, sir. Thanks, Jonathan. We'll be back with more shows soon, so subscribe through Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email the show at jnelson at tafp.org and visit us online at www.tafp.org. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm Jonathan Nelson for the Texas Academy of Family Physicians, and this has been Texas Family Doc Talk. Family Doc Talk.